Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Everything's running smoothly. Yo, 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 yo! What is going on? My name's Hartzell, and this right here, it's your KC. What's the word? Kansas City, a happy Tuesday to KC Morning Hoes. All right, on the show today, we take back America. It's what we do every Tuesday on your KC Morning Show. We got some new listeners, so maybe I need to tell y'all what we do on a Tuesday and, you know, the occasional Thursday. We reclaim the radical social democratic history of America. Myself, Professor Harvey K., he's a professor emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, one of the foremost leading scholars of FD. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president. Professor K and myself, we talk about this all the time. We are very much believers in serendipity. And this one's a bit of a bummer, but the parallels of today's episode with what we got going on in the world, I mean, it's uncanny. So maybe right now what we need is a little little radical pump me up, courtesy of FDR and me and Professor Harvey K. That's up next on your KC Morning Show. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your folks what we do around Chia. We got a show back in your feeds tomorrow and uh, a little news we drop. Like right now. Let's do it right now. My name's Hartzell. A good day to be in Kansas City and a good day to take back America. We'll see ya in the morning. Bye. Professor Harvey K, my brother. Look at you today, my friend. I'm going to call this, I'm going to call this, Harvey, your Taking Back America turtleneck. Because whenever I see you and you got that black turtleneck ready to go, I know we're about to dive into some radical history. I'm going to have to put some more color in this picture. (laughs) What color do you see? Is that navy? I only wear navy because I actually always tended to associate clothing in black as somehow associated with someone's passing. It's just from when I was a kid. I'd like to wear a lot of black, Harvey. And so I like to call that the Hamlet aesthetic. I think Hamlet was a lot more fashion forward than we give him credit for. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, wow. I am very impressed by that reference, by the way. If I gave you a tour on FaceTime of my drawers, not my pants drawers, but my... (laughs) My drawers of, of sweaters and stuff is like Navy, Navy, Navy. The only thing I punctuated with, you will not be surprised, is for Packer Weekends, green. <laughs> Should have known. Now, for Packers Weekend, will you do a green turtleneck? Yes. I'll just tell a quick story. This is going to be irrelevant to our listeners, but they might as well know. So yes, autumn, winter, into the spring, I wear turtlenecks. Either a turtleneck shirt, turtleneck sweater, a mock turtleneck, whatever. Here's the thing. I'm not crazy about wearing a tie. Not crazy about it. You know, I can do it. I think I look great in it. But But some years ago, this would be like 30, 35 years ago, I became friendly with a group of, I think I've said this before, a group of elder British intellectuals, British Marxist historians. And my very first book was on this group of historians. And I I really took ideas and and methods from them. And they really shaped my thinking. One of them I became very close to. His name is George Rudet, R-U-D-E with an accent on the E. His father was Norwegian. His mother was English. And so the name was Rud, 
okay, for the Norwegian. But he grew up in England, not in Norway. I think they send him some kind of boarding school. You know, they probably not rich, but well off. And the name Rude it was a bad name to have. So he took on the accent over the E to make it Rude. And George was a great, a great historian. And I also have to say, I was not a student of his in a traditional sense. He was a great teacher. So all around the world, in England, Canada, uh, Australia, and even here in the United States, there were those who had had him as a professor, either when he was in full residence at a university or maybe came for a stretch to offer special courses. And I came to know him, I think he was already, he, he clearly was into his 70s when I first came to know him, maybe even 80. And he was doing a half a year teaching every year in Montreal. He and his wife were retired to the south of England. His wife was Irish, by the way, so they were retired. I loved his wife. His wife was phenomenal. She loved the whole family. We, we became very, very close. And I'm actually the literary executor of the George Ruday works. So when George came to speak, when I invited him to speak, come down from, from Montreal, he, he didn't wear a tie. He wore a jacket. I'm not even sure he wore a jacket, but he, didn't, he, he wore a, a turtleneck. And, and I thought to myself, wow, if this renowned scholar figure that I admire so much can get away with a turtleneck. Maybe I should get away with a turtleneck. And it wouldn't help for me to show it right now because people out in the audience of our podcast can't see what you and I can see. But remind me soon, I'll show you the picture of George and me the day he was giving the lecture to 200 of my students. And he had them in the palm of his hand. I mean, they wanted his autograph afterward. He was this, you know, elderly, stunning, and he just told his great stories about the French Revolution, which was the subject of his talk. So ever since I took to wearing turtlenecks, by the way, as I told my students, I don't wear the same shirt every day <laughs> or the same sweater. I have a pile. Listen, let's break the news. Let's break some news. Let me introduce this properly because your good news is extremely important. It will shake up your schedule. You will produce as never before, but definitely changes your schedule. So let me just introduce the fact that Hartzell has taken a major job in the media. I, my friend, and Kansas City, I, uh, I'm an 810. I got picked up by Sports Radio 810 WHB. Making up this position, my friends. We're going to be doing on-air, off-air, promotions, digital. We're just putting this thing together. And by the time you have heard this, hopefully you have seen the graphic and maybe even the press release. And if we haven't got it posted yet, then you heard it here first on your KC Morning Show. How about that, Professor K? I'm applauding even now, okay? You will eat a little better. You will sleep a little less easy because you'll have to get up in the morning. <laughs> We're just going to be up all day. <laughs> and the craziness that has been the last, gosh, what, two years now? That's right. To still be able to do what I love in my hometown, I'm spoiled, my friend. This is the start of something huge. And here's the thing that's probably the best of all of that is that nothing changes. I can still do everything. NPR, the podcast, sporting, the monarchs, everything else I do, wrestling. I wear too many hats, Harvey K. I wear too many hats. <laughs> so it's been a good couple days and it all happened super fast. So it's been it's been awesome, my brother. What about you? You got some news. We're talking about turtlenecks and, and how you look on TV. Yeah, well, ah, we'll, we'll call this we'll call this developing news story because there's nothing contracted yet. There's nothing publicly fully announced. This is between you, me, and the KC Morning Crew. Okay, <laughs> I love it. But there is serious talk over at CNN about doing a documentary series on Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. And I received a call from the company, the production team that is pursuing this initiative. And we've been talking about, you know, 
how I can contribute. So that we'll see. I don't want to say too much more because it's just percolating. It's just starting out. Well, you know what, though, Professor K? I think you actually just gave us a perfect intro into what we're going to be getting into today because one of the reasons why I wish and hope that you will be doing more TVs and more documentaries and all the above is that for our friends on the left, our social democratic brothers and sisters, we talked about this off air today. It's a slippery slope into cynicism and stewing in the sadness of it all. And for folks like you who love this country because of the radicalness of the people of this country, right. we need more of that voice out there. And, you know, we're going to get into it on this episode. FDR, this is a time where we needed someone to go to to give us that spirit, that hope. Hell, we could use that right now from the guy who claims to be FDR or the wannabe FDR. So Harvey K, tell us what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at a few speeches, just a few speeches. And these are speeches delivered between January 1941, that is after the Four Freedom speech we dealt with a couple of weeks ago. And it will take us all the way up until the winter of 1942. That is a mere set of weeks following the attack on Pearl Harbor. We're going to look at these speeches because in many ways, in spite of the theme that connects them all, they are actually quite different speeches. We're going to open, for example, with a third inaugural address delivered in Washington on January 20th, 1941. And I will tell you, this was a speech that I'm told really meant a lot to FDR. And I think he imagined this would be one of his most memorable of speeches. That was not to be the case. It's a wonderful speech, a very inspired speech. But given the For Freedom speech of just a couple of weeks before, it just couldn't carry it just couldn't carry the nation in the same way. The Four Freedoms was, was that dynamic and momentous that this one becomes just an inaugural address. And Harvey, what did you go ahead and title this one in the book, FDR on Democracy? Yes, it's an FDR on Democracy titled, Our Strong Purpose is to Protect and Perpetuate the Integrity of Democracy, which makes this speech relevant to the day. So I'm just going to read the little note that I have in front of the actual text, and we're only going to be choosing the best lines or at least the most moving lines. In his third inaugural address, Roosevelt, citing the nation's great wartime leaders of the past, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, once again reached back into American history to remind Americans of who they were and what the struggle ahead was truly about, the defense of democracy. And I will remind everyone, we are not yet actually in the war. We are becoming the arsenal of democracy. Arthur, why don't you open with those opening lines, which I think really give you a sense of FDR's determination to be the history teacher-in-chief. On each national day of inauguration since 1789, the people have renewed their sense of dedication to the United States. In Washington's day, the task of the people was to create and wield together a nation. In Lincoln's day, the task of the people was to preserve that nation from disruption from within. And this day, the task of the people is to save that nation and its institutions from disruption from without. Now, we're not going to do the whole speech, but there are lines we must pick up on it. All right, so why don't you continue at the point we discussed earlier? Eight years ago, when the life of this republic seemed frozen by a fatalistic terror, we proved that this is not true. We were in the midst of shock, but we acted. We acted quickly, boldly, decisively. I could just interject. He's referring here to the crisis of the Great Depression and the imperative of making war on the Great Depression. And I would add, he may not have intended it, but in some ways making war on the capitalists who would deny the needy and working people of America what was rightfully theirs in terms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
back to you. These later years have been living years, fruitful years for the people of this democracy, for they have brought to us greater security and, I hope, a better understanding that life's ideals are to be measured in other than material things. Most vital to our present and to our future is this experience of a democracy which successfully survived crisis at home, put away many evil things, built new structures on enduring lines, and, through it all, maintained the facts of its democracy. For action has been taken within the three-way framework of the Constitution of the United States. The coordinate branches of the government continue freely to function. The Bill of Rights remains inviolate. The freedom of elections is wholly maintained. Prophets of the downfall of American democracy have seen their dire predictions come to naught. No, democracy is not dying. We know it because we have seen it revive and grow. You know, I just I just want to say that Hartzell and I are fully aware of the flaws and the tragic elements in the democracy of those days. But in the war that was coming, things would happen which would literally boost the question of racial justice and equality to the forefront. And what would come in the post-war years, though not smoothly, though not without violence, though not without assassinations and death, would necessarily dramatically transform the nation. And it's in these years and the imperative of commitment to democracy that FDR is talking about that will later inspire those actions, okay? I'll just pick up from a little ways down. The democratic aspiration is no mere recent phase in human history. It is human history. It permeated the ancient life of early peoples. It blazed anew in the Middle Ages. It was written in Magna Carta. That's the great document of English liberty. In the Americas, its impact has been irresistible. America has been the new world in all tongues and to all peoples, not because this continent was a new found land, but because all those who came here believed they could create upon this continent a new life, a life that should be new in freedom. And I want to repeat, hearing those words, we know damn well, we know damn well that not everyone came here as immigrants, that some came here despite the fact they had no desire to come here at the time, that they were taken from the African continent as slaves and then sold as slaves. We know that. No need to come after you, Hartzell, and me on Twitter. We are well aware. <laughs> its vitality was written into our own Mayflower Compact, into the Declaration of Independence, into the Constitution of the United States, into the Gettysburg Address. Those who first came here to carry out the longings of their spirit and the millions who followed and the stock that sprang from them all have moved forward constantly and consistently toward an ideal which in itself has gained stature and clarity with each generation. The hopes of the Republic cannot forever tolerate either undeserved poverty or self-serving wealth. Now, this next line is important because it gets at the kinds of things that I've been sidebarring in this reading. We know that we still have far to go that we must more greatly build the security and the opportunity and the knowledge of every citizen in the measure justified by the resources and capacity of the land. But it is not enough to achieve those purposes alone. It is not enough to clothe and feed the body of this nation, to instruct and inform its mind, for there is also the spirit. And of the three, the greatest is the spirit. And now we'll go to the concluding lines. I leave those to you, Hartzell. The destiny of America was proclaimed in the words of prophecy spoken by our first president in his first inaugural in 1789. Words almost directed, it would seem, to this year of 1941. The preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are justly considered, deeply, 
finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. If you and I, in this latter day, lose that sacred fire, if we let it be smothered with doubt and fear, then we shall reject the destiny which Washington strove so valiantly and so triumphantly to establish. The preservation of the spirit and faith of the nation does and will furnish the highest justification for every sacrifice that we may make in the cause of national defense. In the face of great perils never before encountered, our strong purpose is to protect and to perpetuate the integrity of democracy. For this, we muster the spirit of America and the faith of America. We do not retreat. We are not content to stand still. As Americans, we go forward in this service of our country by the will of God. Yeah, thank you. That's great. That was great. Now, there's a speech that he later gave that summer, June 30th, 1941, a, a speech that I've titled, A Nation Must Believe in Three Things. It, the occasion was that FDR was donating his books and papers to the United States, to the nation. He was establishing what would be the first presidential library in Hyde Park, New York, just north of Poughkeepsie along the Hudson River. And I urge all of you, if you're ever in the Hudson Valley, you must go to the FDR library. I know Hartzell had wanted to go recently. He promises me he will go soon enough. This summer, and Kitty's already put it on the calendar. Oh, fantastic. That's great. So I just want to read the opening lines of the speech he gave. It's a very short speech. It's only a few lines. But I think, it's, I think the message is important. And by the way, I think in many ways, as much as we launched Take Back America on Casey Morning Show on Tuesday, sometimes on Thursday when necessary, <laughs> we did it out of, in part, anger and determination to counter the efforts by Josh Hawley to hijack the American radical story. But the need to reclaim, redeem, recover the American radical story is not simply to go after Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri. Ah. It's also because the past has things to tell us, to inspire us, to remind us, a vision to offer us when we become cynical. So here's FDR as to why he believes in the importance of libraries and of history. It seems to me that the dedication of a library is in itself an act of faith to bring together the records of the past and to house them in buildings where they will be preserved for the use of men and women in the future a nation must believe in three things. It must believe in the past. It must believe in the future. It must above all believe in the capacity of its own people so to learn from the past that they can gain in judgment in creating their own future. I love those words. You'll have to believe me. They're sitting on a sheet of paper over the desk I'm working from. I've got a lot of quotes up there. Sometime we can just do a show on the quotes I've got hanging in front of me. Okay, well, let's go to the speech that everyone knows, a speech that needs not full repeating, but a reminder that there were times when FDR would speak, not necessarily in terms of hope, but in terms of anger, real anger. I've read a commentary on the speech by one historian who I think passed away a few years ago, who said that this was... FDR articulating the rage that Americans felt that they were attacked at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941 by surprise. And I want to make this clear. The Roosevelt administration and the military knew there would be an attack in the Pacific. It seems as if they expected it to come perhaps in the Philippines, which you know would quickly follow the December 7th Pearl Harbor attack. But contrary to those who want to develop conspiracy theories, 
they did not know and did not expect the attack on Pearl Harbor. For had they done so, they would have been smart enough to move the battleships and the, well, the, yeah, the battleships out of the harbor. They didn't move. It didn't happen. The losses were, were huge, you know, to the point of a few thousand uh, American uh, men and women, I assume, given the nurses that were in the naval base there. This is a speech titled Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Take it away, Hartzell. Mr. Vice President and Mr. Speaker and members of the Senate and House of Representatives. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. And I want to note, this is now my voice, not FDR's. I want to note that it would be only a few days later that Germany and Italy declared war on the United States. Why? Because they were part of what was already known as the Axis power, Germany, Japan, and Italy. It was an alliance that said if one of them was at war, that all three of them were at war. And the United States was their ultimate target without question. I have to say that for much of the 1930s, I believe that FDR was more worried about Germany possibly entering into a war with the United States than Japan, though he, he was well aware of what was going on in the Pacific. At this moment, it's Japan attacks the United States. And it must have occurred to him that if Japan attacks the United States, then the question of Germany and Italy will follow, that he doesn't have to say in the Pearl Harbor speech, we are at war with all three of the Axis powers. I'll also point out that the immediate wartime response was, in fact, to think in terms of defeating Germany and Italy in the Atlantic and Europe. The victory over Japan was in the mind of the military and the administration to ensue. And given the state of the American military in the far Pacific, it's not surprising they took a beating, a beating. So there's one more speech that I thought we ought to deal with before we say adieu to this period. And this is a speech that I've titled, Tyranny Like Hell is Not Easily Conquered, which you may or may not recognize, folks, but those words are words from Thomas Paine. Before you hop in, Professor K, you know, when, when you send me my homework to do before we, we do these things, I had not... I had not been familiar with this one. It's one of those fireside chats you always talk about. This is, this is probably one of my favorite things I've read from FDR. Well, I have to tell you, the New York Times response to this speech, they said it was one of the greatest of Roosevelt's career. And yet this is a speech that has become pretty much a lesser known speech. I loved it. And this was actually the speech by FDR that led me to think in terms of writing a book about FDR and the Four Freedoms. You'd say, well, what am I doing with FDR speeches to begin with? I would, had been writing came out in 2005, the book Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, My Childhood Hero. It wasn't only a book about Thomas Paine, it was a book about his legacy. So I retell the story of America in terms of Thomas Paine's inspiration and influence. And what I did is I followed every trail to find evidence that for all of the efforts of the powers that be to suppress Thomas Paine's memory, that folks on the left, liberals, progressives, radicals, socialists, communists, and anarchists all had laid hold of Thomas Paine, and he was a never the forgotten figure that the rich, 
and the pompous and the pious wanted to make him. And so I came across this speech by Roosevelt in that search for Thomas Paine's legacy. And I thought, oh, my God, this is such a fantastic speech. And I want you to know that, as you'll see, this is this entire speech will conclude with the words of Thomas Paine. After he gave this speech, he got a letter, a writer from Kansas that said he was so glad to hear Franklin Roosevelt quoting Thomas Paine because Teddy Roosevelt had once upon a time. He didn't say that. I'm saying that on the memory of Thomas Paine. It was imperative that another Roosevelt reclaim Thomas Paine for Americans and his progressive, radical, revolutionary spirit. I got to ask you, who was that writer from Kansas? I got to know. Pause. Hartz and I took a brief break there so I could go get the book with the letters, selected letters to FDR's many fireside chats and speeches. And the speech we're dealing with today, there were lots of good letters, but one in particular, absolutely love. This is a letter dated March 2nd, 1942. So it's not many days following his hearing of the speech of February 23rd. Dear President, the omission of any reference whatever to a deity in your fireside chat on February 22nd, makes this speech, in my estimation, one of the greatest orations ever delivered to our nation. Notice the omission of any reference, whatever to a deity. This guy loved it. Okay. (laughs) The sooner we Americans are made to realize that this is a struggle of and for humanity alone, without any providential intercession, the sooner will peace and victory become a reality. But this is the concluding paragraph. Words cannot express my gratitude for your high tribute to Thomas Paine. I cannot help but compare this in contrast to another Roosevelt. He was talking of Teddy Roosevelt, a quarter of a century ago, who libelously referred to Paine as a filthy little atheist. And Paine was neither. Respectfully yours, H.G. Hayes, Junction City, Kansas. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yes. So let us turn to this speech. As I was saying a little while ago, the United States was taking a beating in the Pacific. And to some extent in the Atlantic, the convoys were getting knocked about like crazy. His advisors told FDR, you're going to have to go on radio again. You'll have to do a fireside chat. You have to reassure the American people. You also have to explain to them why we're going to be fighting a two-front war, the Atlantic and the Pacific. Indeed, why this is a global war and what's at stake. So they decided what would be more appropriate than to plan a speech for Washington's birthday weekend. And what they did is they sent the announcement out there would be this speech on that weekend and that everyone, every household should get themselves a map of the world. They ran all the stores, all the stationary stores, the five and dimes, as they were called. They all ran out of maps. The bookstores, they all ran out of maps. So the major Sunday newspapers that weekend, because this speech would probably have been on a, I think it would have been the Monday night of the Washington's birthday weekend. Used to be, you had a Lincoln's birthday weekend and a Washington's birthday weekend. Today we have the president's birthday weekend. This is Washington's birthday weekend. The centerfold of all the newspapers was a map of the world. I bought one off of eBay somewhere behind oh, me. Wow. Sticky. Yeah. He literally is going to give them a geography lecture on how we are no longer able to be an isolationist fortress and nation, which they've already come to realize given the attack on Pearl Harbor, but all the more that we have to fight on two fronts and we are currently taking a beating. So he's got to inspire Americans. He opens up with direct reference to Washington. Hartzell, why don't you open up? My fellow Americans, Washington's birthday is a most appropriate occasion for us to talk with each other about things as they are today and things as we know they shall be in the future. For eight years, General Washington and his Continental Army were faced continually with 
Formidable odds and recurring defeats. Supplies and equipment were lacking. In a sense, every winter was a valley forge. Throughout the 13 states, there existed fifth columnists, or, and these are my words, Tories, and selfish men, jealous men, fearful men, who proclaimed that Washington's cause was hopeless and that he should ask for a negotiated peace. Washington's conduct in those hard times has provided the model for all Americans ever since, a model of moral stamina. He held to his course, as it had been charted in the Declaration of Independence. He and the brave men who served with him knew that no man's life or fortune was secure without the freedom and free institutions. That present great struggle has taught us increasingly that freedom of person and security, of property, anywhere in the world, depend upon the security of the rights and obligations of liberty and justice everywhere in the world. He goes on at this point to explain that this is a new kind of war. And what he means by that, it's global. It is different from all other wars of the past, not only in its methods and weapons, but also in its geography. It is warfare in terms of every continent, every island, every sea, every lane in the world. It is a global war, he's telling us. But he's also concerned about those who are at home who might be what he called, it was a term used at the time, fifth columnist, that is enemies within. Case of the revolution, Tories, the loyalists, okay? At this time, it would have been those who had been a member of particularly German American associations that wanted to see Hitler prevail in Europe, the Atlantic, and eventually in an alliance with a fascist United States. Well, he says to Americans, some ways long after explaining the geography of the war, these words, he tells them. The Axis propagandists have tried in various evil ways to destroy our determination and our morale. Failing in that, they are now trying to destroy our confidence in our own allies. They say that the British are finished, that the Russians and the Chinese are about to quit. Patriotic and sensible Americans will reject these absurdities. And instead of listening to any of this crude propaganda, they will recall some of the things that Nazi and Japanese have said and are still saying about us. Ever since this nation became the arsenal of democracy, ever since enactment of Lend-Lease, there has been one persistent theme through all Axis propaganda. This theme has been that Americans are admittedly rich, that Americans have considerable industrial power, but that Americans are soft and decadent that they cannot and will not unite and work and fight. From Berlin, Rome, and Tokyo, we have been described as a nation of weaklings, playboys who would hire British soldiers or Russian soldiers or Chinese soldiers to do our fighting for us. Let them repeat that now. Let them tell that to General MacArthur and his men. Let them tell that to the sailors who today are hitting hard in the far waters of the Pacific. Let them tell that to the boys in the flying fortresses. Let them tell that to the Marines. And he also then speaks of what we are fighting for. He doesn't actually call our allies simply our allies. He begins to use the term the United Nations. He's already envisioning not simply an alliance, but a post-war world, if you like, involved in a global enterprise called the United Nations. He then returns to the where he began with Washington's retreat across New Jersey to some kind of refuge in Delaware. And let me point out to remind everyone that along the way of that retreat, Thomas Paine, who was in Washington's 
entourage was told by Washington or possibly Nathaniel Green, his favorite general, told Payne, I think it's time to apply your pen again, Mr. Payne, meaning you got to write something fast. And Payne began to write while they're enduring the winter on horseback coming across New Jersey. And he begins this pamphlet, you will recall, these are the times that try men's souls. This pamphlet was basically underway in the retreat. Washington then gave permission to, for, for Payne to leave the army, not leave the army, but leave the retreat and head to Philadelphia. They were going to cross elsewhere along the Delaware. He said, you go to Philadelphia, get the pamphlet published. Goes to Philadelphia, get them published. They put them in boxes. They actually send quite a few of them to Washington's encampment along the Delaware. And he orders his men, his officers, to read the pamphlet aloud to his, their men before they get on the boats to recross the Delaware to fight at Trenton. And that's their first victory in, in the revolution. I'll close out with those words. The task that we Americans now face, this is Roosevelt speaking, will test us to the uttermost. Never before have we been called upon for such a prodigious effort. Never before have we had so little time in which to do so much. Quote, these are the times that try men's souls. Tom Paine wrote those words on a drumhead by the light of a campfire. That was when Washington's little army of ragged, rugged men was retreating across New Jersey, having tasted nothing but defeat. And General Washington ordered that those great words written by Tom Paine be read to the men of every regiment in the Continental Army. And this was the assurance given to the first American armed forces. Quote, the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the sacrifice, the more glorious the triumph. So spoke Americans in the year 1776. So speak Americans today. That's a good one, Harvey K. I mean, it is indeed. I'm proud of the way we handled that, Hartzell. To me, this feels like, you know, renewing the spirit. That's what I hear from FDR. You know, in all of our weeks we've been leading up to this, the young radical kind of putting his thoughts together. Then we saw really the, the triumph of all those policies now being put into place. And now we've got not just the crisis that was the depression. Now we have been attacked and we need that pump me up in the locker room at halftime. And that feels like what this is. Why do you should say that? I have to tell you, 20 years ago, I can tell you, and when I Googled those words, this is the early day, earlier days of Google, what popped up was speeches at halftime by coaches whose teams were losing. <laughs> Tom Payne, there's a place for him everywhere. Everywhere, you bet. <laughs> Professor Harvey K., what do we got for these folks next week as we reclaim this radical history? We're going to actually jump ahead to 1944, the State of the Union message of 1944, the Economic Bill of Rights speech, the speech in which Roosevelt returns to the theme of the economic declaration of rights that he pronounced in 32 and to the four freedoms that he pronounced the historic speech of 1941, January 6th. He now goes on to give it even more emphasis and meaning specifically for the Americans fighting the war and for the vision that he thinks they should subscribe to after the war. And he offers the idea of a second Bill of Rights. That's going to be our next task. Now, that's the only one we're going to do next time because we have a story to tell about it. 
And I think, you know, we may want to reflect on the very things he was saying. And then maybe we can reflect the week after that with a friend of ours. May we reflect together. Thank you for reminding me. So I don't know if you all realize, but Alan Minsky of the Progressive Democrats of America and I, inspired by FDR's own Economic Bill of Rights speech and in the wake of my doing the Gravel Institute video on that Economic Bill of Rights speech, we decided it was time to call for a second Bill of Rights in the 21st century. And we wrote a piece which lays out the tradition that begins with FDR, is picked up and continued by the great Black labor and civil rights leader, A. Philip Randolph, in the form of a freedom budget that he proposed in the mid-1960s. We also cite wonderful example that in 1968, not long before his death, his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. called for, in writing, an economic bill of rights for all Americans. I would just also add, and I'll repeat this when we get on to those days, that in 1960, the Democratic Party platform, which was written by a veteran of the Roosevelt wartime administration, wrote the platform, went around the country to find out what Americans wanted, Democrats in particular. And he wrote the platform and opens basically with a call for the rights of man, Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson, but then lays out the platform in terms of an economic bill of rights for all Americans. This man is Chester Bowles. And he actually wrote in his memoirs that when he went south with the idea of what do people want, and of course, the folks that he met with, one place were white and the other place were black. So he met with these Southern Democrats, you know, historically the white supremacist Southern Democrats. And he came away absolutely convinced that whatever they might otherwise try to do, that they knew segregation was on its very last legs, which is interesting because we know the kind of violence and determination that, that you know, was required. Well, the violence on the part of the supremacists and the determination on the part of civil rights marchers and others. So in any case... The Democratic Party platform in 1960 included the resurrection of that FDR vision of the Economic Bill of Rights. And later, Bernie Sanders, in his 2020 campaign, posted on his website a new Economic Bill of Rights inspired by FDR. And there are other examples. And I also want to say, I'm really proud to say that when Alan and I presented, you'll, you'll see it. If you, and I hope you all go to Common Dreams. Just type in Harvey K. There'll be a number of pieces that'll pop up, but the Economic Bill of Rights in particular should show up the most recent piece. And we consulted with a number of people. Most importantly, we consulted with Nina Turner, who's currently running for Congress in Cleveland. Uh, hopefully she'll win. We've become friends, Nina and I, and I, I can tell you that she's embracing this idea tremendously. So, you know, we've got a lot to look forward to in the next couple of weeks. And I will add, since you know John Shelton, mm -hmm. okay, his wife is an assembly person from this, from my own district. In fact, she's my representative. I'm very proud of what she does. She and another representative, also freshman representative, Francesca Hong, introduced this past year a resolution to the Democratic caucuses and the Senate and Assembly here in Wisconsin that the Democrats should actually advance and push a Wisconsin Economic Justice Bill of Rights. There are others around the country who have been actually contacting me who are interested in exploring the possibility of of embracing this as they campaign as progressives for national and state level offices. Chris Schultz, I think she's a state assembly person. I, I can't remember Senator Assembly right this minute, but she has campaigned for a $15 an hour minimum wage in New Hampshire. And she reached out and said she's got ideas as to how we might push this as a national initiative. So I'm, I may be hearing from her tonight or tomorrow, and we'll talk about what she has in mind too. So lots of stuff coming up. 
So I'm going to circle back to the very beginning of what we just said. We're not trying to stew in the cynicism. I don't think anything you just heard from Professor Harvey K. or myself would let you to believe that we don't still give a damn and still believe in the promise of the freedom of it all. That's what it's about. That's why I think we need more voices like yourself and more folks like you, Kansas City, or whoever you are listening, wherever. We need you. We need you right now. We'll deal with Aaron Rodgers when the time comes. Okay? <laughs> Professor Harvey K., my brother, I love you. And by the way, before we got 30 more seconds, can you plug the book, FDR on Democracy? There's a book of my writing and FDR speeches titled FDR on Democracy. It's available at various online booksellers. But the other one I want to tell everyone to look into, and it's available in paperback, again, through all online booksellers and good local bookstores, though I can't guarantee it. The Fight for the Four Freedoms. What made FDR and the greatest generation truly great? And I'm available if you want to reach out to me on Twitter at Harvey. J-K-H-A-R-V-E-Y, initial J-K-A-Y-E. Happy to hear from you and welcome you to, you know, whatever we can do in the future. We're going to be hitting a year now doing this, Professor K, and it started off with one simple DM on Twitter. Now look at us. <laughs> Brothers. Absolutely. Well, my brother, my comrade, I'll see you next week. You bet. And I want to congratulate you on that new fantastic job. I have a feeling that it's the beginning of a huge career for you back in the media. Well, you know what? I think the good vibes were sent by your wife, who's got some food on the way for me. So tell Lorna that we're going to celebrate together. You bet. Guaranteed. When I move my body just like this, I don't know why, but I feel like freedom. I hear a song that takes me back, and I let go with so much
to the KC Morning Show.